Good evening, everybody. Uh, happy Thursday. This is our 269th episode of our fireside chat without a fireplace. And uh, David Glinky, as we speak, my sidekick, is flying over Alaska. I think he's on his way to Asia. As you know, he's an American Airlines pilot. And that works because uh, I'm doing our midweek study, as I shared with you last week when I uh, shared a little bit about love. I was also going to do a talk t- tonight about one of my favorite psalms, and I think it's uh, timely. But before I get to that, uh, I want to give you a little bit of an update because today was a critical day. Uh, one of my fellow colleagues, a pastor up in San Jose, California, Pastor Mike McClure, who's a pastor at Calvary Chapel up in San Jose, has been open. He has uh, been in violation, obviously, of the lockdown orders. And uh, they have fined him $1.6 million, the church itself, and then he himself has been hit with a $25,000 fine. And their youth pastor, assistant pastor, has been hit with, I think, $20,000 fine. Unprecedented. Uh, And we also have the Stanford study that came out. Uh, Of course, they don't put that in the news anywhere. But the Stanford study points out that COVID-19 lockdown restrictions are doing nothing to stave off COVID-19. But yet all of our small businesses are being destroyed and fined and shuttered. Our churches are being prosecuted and fined and attempt to shutter them. So today there was a hearing and Mike went before the judge, had a chance to give his side of the story because the previous court hearing uh, were the plaintiffs and now the defendants uh, met and Mike had a chance. He spoke and testified for over an hour. Uh, And I wanted to read to you what uh, Pastor Rick Brown, our co-pastor here at the church, he was present at the court hearing. And these are his words. He said, on behalf of Mike and Pastor Carson, I want to thank everyone for praying for the court case today. They'll be back in court next Thursday at 1.30. And by the way, let me just pause there before I read anything else. Next Thursday at 1.30 at the San Jose Courthouse, uh, I'm going to be there. I'm going to encourage everyone to tell everyone they know to be there. I want this to go out throughout all of California that we amass out there. I'm going to call every pastor I can think of to get their congregations there. Uh, Folks, this is critical for religious liberty, and we need to be out there in force on the court steps um, there in San Jose. I'll give directions and location. Uh, Again, it's next Thursday, 1.30. Just put it on your calendar. Um, I think it's about a six, seven-hour drive if you're going to leave from Ventura. If you're going to fly, there's flights leaving out of LAX, Burbank, Orange County. Go right into San Jose and just hop on over. The courthouse is a, a real short Uber ride from the airport. Everybody come up to San Jose next Thursday, 1.30 p.m. Let me finish this. Uh, So they'll be back in court next Thursday, 1.30 p.m. for one hour of closing arguments and receive the verdict from the judge. The judge and the prosecutors, and this is good, emphasize today that they're only pursuing financial penalties and they're not considering jail time. (laughs) Well, that's really uh, mighty kind of them. Uh, But they were. They were pursuing jail time. They had spoken of that because, um, you know, $1.6 million in fines and uh, this is is for violating a health order and these penalties are unbelievably high considering we're releasing convicts into the streets, um, (laughs) emptying our prisons for COVID-19 but they're arresting and fining pastors and putting churches uh, in financial harm by 1.6 million dollars in fines. Who who does that? So um, that's the good news. He won't face any jail time. That was emphasized. Uh, Mike was on the witness stand for over an hour today. His dad, uh, Don McClure, who's the head of the Calvary Chapel Association, uh, pointed out that 
you know, the Lord just spoke mightily through His Son. And, and I, I'm in agreement. I, I know that there was some profound aspects of today that had to come through and touch the hearts of the folks present. I know when we were in court, I know the judge was moved. I, I know even the prosecutor was moved. Uh, this is... These are folks being forced to do things that they're not comfortable with in these draconian measures. And we're watching as Chicago and New York are preparing to lift restrictions in their cities. So, you know, they're, they're on a short runway. And to justify these fines and to justify what they've done. And then with a Stanford study coming out, hey, folks, look, we're, we're approaching 500 deaths in the county. That's tragic and awful. Um, again, we've been going through the numbers, uh, this idea of comorbidities and what we're facing. And the lion's share of the deaths are 65. Actually, we'll just go 55 and older. That, that constitutes a 55 and older. That constitutes almost 90% of the deaths in our county, which are tragic. And we don't dismiss that. But to shutter the businesses and to do what we've done to our economy and what we've been doing to churches. Uh, and again, as we've covered it, in a 12-month period in the United States of America, complete history of the U.S., uh, there has never been more opioid overdose deaths in the history of our country in the last 12 months. And let alone not even considering suicides and all the other things that we're facing. Uh, churches are essential. It's critical that they be open and that people have a place to come and find comfort and solace. Um, so looking at the numbers and looking at the Stanford study and looking at all of the, the facts that we're up against, it's important that we push back and let folks know that churches need to be open. And uh, it'd be good next Thursday, 1.30 p.m., show up in force. Be there at the county courthouse. Let them know you support Pastor Mike and the, the fine congregants there at uh, Calvary Chapel, San Jose. Uh, brave, brave man. I'm so thankful for him. Um, be sure to support Bob Tyler, who is doing this pro bono. Pro bono means that he's footing the bill. Uh, he's still got a business to take care of, and you know he's got a family to care for. So uh, support their ministry, their nonprofit, uh, Faith Freedom. Uh, I, I gotta, I'll, I'll find it for you. We'll put it on at the end. We'll tag it uh, where you can uh, support Bob Tyler. He's also our attorney who helps us as well. I just always forget the URL for that, but I'll get that for you. We'll have it on the link there. So uh, tonight what I wanted to do is uh, just, well, first of all, I want to share. I, I don't know if any of you watched the inauguration. I did not. Uh, I saw pictures of it. It looked really ominous. It almost struck me as a Hunger Games kind of thing. The entire capital was locked down. I was uh, watching it through Jorge Ventura, uh, the citizen reporter, who's been doing great work. Now he's in Portland, and of course we have federal troops that are arresting Antifa rioters. Uh, they're pushing back, firing non-lethal bullets into the crowd. So now they're uh, arresting people in Portland. We had zero troops in Portland, 5,000 troops in Iraq, where we had a suicide bomber today. But we had 25,000 troops in our capital, a complete lockdown. Fascinating that a president who received 80 million votes uh, would require um, that kind of security. He's supposed to be the most popular president in the history of the United States. Um, so it, it, it's just been a weird week. A lot of us are reeling and struggling. Uh, it seems as though the narrative now is anyone who's conservative is now a racist. And uh, um, conservative organizations are being targeted. Folks are going after them. Um, it's just crazy. So... Um, We'll see what transpires. You know, he talked about unity and a number of other things, but it doesn't seem as though that's the narrative. Um, so that's where we are. We'll give you more of that. But, you know, I just I kind of wanted to deviate from it for a season because I woke up this morning and I turned to one of my favorite psalms that's been a great comfort to me. 
in times where it's just kind of hard to figure out everything that's happening. Got a number of texts and emails from folks that are just questioning how all this could have transpired and what's happening to the country. And yeah, I imagine everybody's just kind of reeling from it all. And uh, we've never faced anything like this in the history of our country. Uh, still, though, it was a smooth transition of power. No shots were fired. Uh, president went off to Florida. Uh, Joe Biden is now president of the United States, and uh, Kamala Harris is now the vice president. Uh, how that transpired, how folks feel about it, the censorship that's happening across the board. Interesting, uh, one of the things that they did is they took the White House Instagram page, uh, zeroed it out, and put it together for archive purposes, but never before in Instagram history did they then take all the followers that were signed up to the White House Instagram page that were obviously following President Trump, and they transferred all of those followers uh, into uh, Joe Biden's administration and his new Instagram page. So folks were trying to, uh, you know, unfollow and they kept putting them back in. And this has been going on all day. What's interesting is it's probably the only uh, social media site where you're getting a true feeling of the people of America because they haven't been able to, um, at least at this point, they haven't censored the comments underneath each of the, the um, posts by the new administration. And typically what they do is even if those, those comments have a number of likes, they just push them to the bottom and then put the ones they want at the top. But in this case, they haven't censored those. And it's kind of funny to read these. I mean, um, here you have the President of the United States and all these things happening and the comments underneath it as they've forced them to go into this new social media site of Instagram. Unprecedented. Uh, the tech oligarchy is in full force. Again, we have no, no idea how long we'll be able to remain going. Uh, but we're going to keep doing that. Uh, but, but tonight, if they want to censor us, we're going to be uh, talking about something that's true, unlike the things they do. We're going to be talking about something that's true, and that's called the Word of God. And that brings great comfort and solace to folks that are just struggling right now. And I want you to know, this is a psalm that deeply ministered to my heart, continues to in these times. I want to give it to you. It's one of my favorites. It's not going to be a long teaching tonight because it's a, a psalm that has three verses, uh, but three very profound verses because... It was a psalm written by David, and the question of the psalm itself, when it was written, it could have been when Michal, his wife, uh, ostracized him for dancing um, unceremonially, they said in his underwear, it was actually his linen garment, um, and, and critiquing him and saying that he was um, a disgrace to the nation, and yet he was dancing for reasons to glorify the Lord. And he said, I'd be even more undignified than this. So it could be that David wrote this psalm uh, after that incident. Some believe that maybe the psalm was written after God had told him he couldn't build the temple, but his son Solomon would be the one to build the temple. And that kind of hit David hard because it was his desire all along. He had gathered all the materials necessary to build it, and God said, no, you've got blood on your hands. You won't be the one to build the temple. And David's thinking to himself, you know, I have blood on my hands because you're the one who called me to war. And now he's saying, I, I can't do the thing I want to do. Uh, so it could have been then that he wrote this psalm. We don't know, but what we do know about the psalm is it speaks of someone who has confronted a God who uh, obviously uh, things didn't go the way they wanted, and now they're confronted with a God who is still enthroned, who's still sovereign, who's still operating as a sovereign God, but trying to figure out his ways were beyond 
the author, which is David. And whether it was any one of these incidents in his life, the one thing we do know is that he came to a conclusion and understanding how God operates in the lives of his children. And we have to come to that understanding. As I've said before, when Joshua confronted the angel or the, the uh, commander of the Lord's army, uh, an angel, and said to the angel, uh, he said, are you for us or against us? And the commander of the Lord's army said, neither. And what he was basically saying, it's not about me being on your side, it's about you being on my side. And as Abraham Lincoln pointed out in his second inaugural address, um, they both read the same Bible, prayed to the same God, expecting completely different outcomes. And then it was <clears throat> Abraham Lincoln who, when he dug into it and started to understand it, a man who had never professed formal membership in a church, nor professed Christ publicly, nor was baptized, understood the scriptures and understood the hand of God. He was the one who would say that when times were so crushing and overwhelming, he realized there was nowhere else to go but to his knees to pray. And he penned that second inaugural address pointing out that uh, the ways of God are, are profound and hard to figure out. Uh, but he started to realize that everything that everyone wanted was not what God was seeking. He was looking, in a sense, at the scourge upon the nation of slavery of four million human beings that were enslaved simply by an immutable trait, the color of their skin. And now, here we look in America and we're thinking, why didn't it go our way? How come it didn't work out? And yet, let's not forget, folks, that if we're to really assess the nation as the church, uh, we've been operating for a number of years where we have just swept under the rug the realization that a million children a year are killed. And <clears throat> we've come up with um, theology. I, I read one today where uh, someone had commented to a friend of mine that, yeah, you're pro-choice, but what, who's going to take care of those children? As though that would be a reason to allow them to be killed because no one's there to care for them. And of course, we at our church, ever since I've been the pastor, have offered to care for anyone who's pregnant and wants to uh, keep the baby or put the baby up for adoption. We've offered to care. 20 plus years, we've never had one person take us up on that. So, I, you know, I, I think of that and say, well, that's your argument to, to justify the destruction and death of a million children a year is because there isn't anyone to care for them. Well, the question then would be, is that how we're to treat humanity? Because if this is a human being, and that's really what the question is, what is it? It, it can't be anything but a human being. And, and if, it, if, if we understand that, scripturally speaking, which the scriptures do speak to that, because you can't care for someone, you're going to kill them? Is that, is that the logic that the church now has? And so, folks, these are just things that we have to take into mind when we're considering the ways of the Lord, why we're in a situation like this, and to reevaluate and say, you know, Lord, I want to awaken to the things that are important to you and get back to what is important and focus on that. And so with that, as I opened up the psalm this morning and just... <clears throat> sought solace and comfort, I was, I was lamenting to the Lord, and that's why I turned to this psalm. I was lamenting, just saying, you know, God, I don't get you sometimes. And I have these conversations with him. He's gracious to me. He doesn't treat me like he did Job. You know, who is this who darkens my counsel with words that are without knowledge? He's much more, well, maybe I'm just not at that point yet, but <clears throat> the, the Lord was gracious to me this morning. And through Psalm 131, I was deeply blessed. I'd encourage all of you as well. If you haven't read the book of Job, you need to. It's actually the oldest book in the Bible. It predates the book of Genesis, uh, authors believe. 
Uh, and and that's, that's an idea that, you know, God does as God does. He's a good God. We have to rest in that, but His ways are not our ways. And we read the book of Job, and we see that everything's restored at the end. But let's not forget, He was in the middle of it. He doesn't see the end of the story. He's just watching destruction and misery and heartache and wondering why God's doing all this. And, and yet, this idea that there were none more righteous in the land that, than, than uh, Job, and here he's just being plagued with devastation, it's a hard one to process, but if you can come to that understanding that God's ways are good, but they're not our ways, and the way He operates is beyond us, and we have to trust Him, especially in times like this. And this is where fair-weathered fair friends that have kind of built <clears throat> an idea who God is, uh, they start to question this thin theology, but it goes much deeper as God really wants to reach the heart of man, and that we would understand what grieves Him and what is critical and what the church needs to be about. So, with that, as I was lamenting to the Lord and I opened up Psalm 131, I was greatly comforted, and I, I want you to see it. And so I'm going to read it to you, and we're going to put it up on the screen right now. So let's, let's bring it up on the screen if we could, and uh, I'll read this to you. Um, so it, it is, it's what they call a song of ascents, and um, it is, it, it's, um, it's a remarkable psalm in this regard, um, it's a song of said that he's ascending up to obviously the temple, and he's having to process all these all these things before he gets there. And again, we don't know when this occurred or when it was written by David, but we do know he's the author because you can see right there of David. And so the psalm begins. It says, "Lord," and actually the word "Lord" is Yahweh. It's his personal name. It's a tetragrammaton. It's uh, YWHW. They, they never pronounced it, but it's it's his personal name. He says in a in a personal lament to God. He says, "Lord." My heart is not haughty, nor my eyes lofty, neither do I concern myself with great matters, nor with things too profound for me. Surely I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. And this idea of David saying that my heart is not haughty. Uh, it's, it's this idea that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And that's out of Proverbs 3.34. James 4.6 also points out in 1 Peter 5.5 5, that my heart is not haughty nor my eyes too lofty. Uh, it's, it's this submission to God. It's this idea that he's experienced how wonderful, complete submission to God is. He's come up against a God who's a, a, immovable. He's come up against a God who is sovereign. He's come up against the ways of the Lord that, though he's complained and he's been struggling with it, he, he comes to a place of complete submission and just rests in this idea. Uh, it's this idea that he's rejecting arrogance. Um, and, and, and arrogance is, is uh, it's someone who's under the influence of pride. We become arrogant and look down on other people as though we've accomplished great things. And we think, Lord, you know what I've done for you. And you know how hard I worked and the, uh, the efforts that we put in. And it just seems as it came to nothing and, and going on and on in regards to all this. <clears throat> and the Lord just stops him dead in his tracks and says, you know, uh, David, I, I, I am in control here. And um, though you've accomplished great things and you, and, and you think that, that you have a, a pre-prescribed destiny uh, and, and you think that, that this justifies uh, what you expect to be the end result, it doesn't. And, um, and, and as a result, David was thinking of himself uh, better than others. My efforts are more important, and my results are something that are critical that we should receive. 
And let's think about that for a moment. Just pause. You can, and I'm going to keep the psalm up on the screen because I, I want you to just keep reflecting on it. But, you know, we get to a place where we think, our positions are better and our ideas are better. And, and that is true. I, I believe that to be the case. But somehow, because we espouse them and we stand upon them, that we're supposed to win and, and we're supposed to get what it is we wanted for an outcome. But if we ever stop to consider, maybe these are our positions, but if we ever stop to consider what are God's positions, the arrogance is not so much against those that hold differing views. The arrogance is that we know better than God does. And... Uh, and it's this idea that arrogance goes beyond pride. Pride's looking down on other people, but arrogance is an expression of pride. It's like, Lord, I know better than you do. And so David lays this out and he says, God, I've come to this place of submission. My heart's not haughty. My, my eyes are not too lofty. And then he says, I don't concern myself with matters uh, too great. I, I, I just, myself with great matters. I, I yield, Lord. This is, you know, I, I know selfish ambition. I, I know this idea that my ideas are supposed to be somehow better than yours. Uh, but God, as I'm looking at the landscape, I can't figure this out. This is way too profound for me. I, I don't, I just, I am in absolute confusion because everything I thought was supposed to work hasn't. And I have no idea how you're going to get out of this mess. And, and you're, you're left with just being overwhelmed because you thought you had a plan. And all of a sudden, it's just dashed. And, and you, you focus on your position. But the idea is your position is, has been placed above what, what God's position was. God had, a, had appointed for this season something like this to occur. And Jesus taught us to accept a lower place. In, in Luke 14... He said, wait patiently for God to lift you up in the wisdom of his timing. And, you know, you, you can have godly aspirations. These are good, as you see in Philippians 3. But there's also selfish ambitions. 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, Galatians 5.20, Philippians 1.16. Uh, it's, the one way to determine between selfish ambitions and godly ambitions uh, is, is to look if, if it's a focus um, on God related to godly aspirations or a focus on self, selfish ambitions. I wanted comfort. I, I wanted security. I wanted to know that everything was going to be all right. Well, maybe God has greater purposes. Maybe there's something he wants to resolve that is um, systemic in the nation itself. And, and we, we exercise ourselves in great matters by having a high ambition to do something very wonderful in the church or, or even in the nation. And this is why very little is done uh, because we, we, we think that we're in the right and, and uh, you know we, we have great ideas, but we haven't we haven't engaged in, and participated in that process. And um, the great destroyer of good works is the ambition to do great works because you may have the ambition to do it, but you don't. And, and you, you know, the, the road to hell is paved with, with good intentions or good ambitions. And now the Lord's saying, well, you had ambitions, you had intentions, but did you really do my will? And it's difficult to recognize that sometimes. Um, and and we, we, we want to honor the Lord. We want to do things in accordance with Him. But I, I like the idea that this, this psalm, um, it's this idea of a young man who's quite content with uh, you know, his life and, and he's come face to face with a sovereign God. And uh, you want to win souls and you want to do things God's way. But the idea is, are you content doing what God wants you to do if that's not going to bring you um, great notoriety or accomplishments or things of this sort. You have to just kind of stop and, and allow the Lord to establish this in your life. And so 
these 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 great matters that are too profound. It, it can apply to some intellectual or mental pursuits that may, uh, may become expressions of pride. Uh, in pride, we can demand to know aspects of God's will or mind. That was Job's sin. I mean, he had to repent of that in Job 40. And, and David understood the principles of Deuteronomy 29.29 that says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of His law. And so David settles this, and he just says, You know, God, I'm all right with that. I'm, I'm going to rest in that. This is too profound for me. And so what does he do? He has to come off his high horse. He has to take a look at the mess that's uh, on the horizon and all that he's facing and all of his dreams and aspirations have been crushed and the things that he held dear don't seem to be there anymore. And, and now, what do you do? What do you do as a person whose life has been hit like this? And David points it out with this word, surely. He says, surely I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. He determined to find this satisfaction in the serenity of his soul, content with God and his works. That's where we all have to be. We have to come to a place where we're content with God and his works. Those who feel constantly driven to do and to achieve more in their relationship with God should learn some of what David has learned here. He just found that place of serenity and rest in the Lord. When's the last time you just had a quiet moment with the Lord and read? We've all been so busy running to try to resolve all these things. And I have to tell you, shutting my phone off and uh, getting off social media and just spending time in God's Word has been a great comfort to me in this season to realign with His purposes and not my own. And I, I, I just want to emphasize that, that God used the operation of David's choice, but we must choose to calm and quiet our soul just like David did. It was vital for him to connect with the Lord and to calm his heart. And this idea and the wonder of quiet contentment with God is really one to pursue. It's precious. We, we need to be still and know that he's God. And that idea of, of quiet contentment of what David speaks uh, is to be silenced and to find rest in his presence. Uh, you can see that in Psalm 62.1. But he, he uses an illustration in a comparison when he says, like a weaned child with his mother. A child not yet weaned is one that embraces the mother with the thought of food and immediate satisfaction. But a weaned child embraces the mother out of a desire for love, closeness, companionship. And that was what David was describing here in this comparison. It goes beyond this idea of telling God what you want and being demanding of Him and then just wanting to just simply settle in His presence. Um, weaning is, is one where the child becomes capable and able to do things. And so the choice to sit with the mother is one where uh, it's a choice of wanting to be in the mother's presence. And, um, you know, we, I like what Spurgeon says. He says, weaning was one of the first real troubles that we met with after we came into this world. And it was at that time a very terrible one to our little hearts. We got over it somehow or other. You know, we, we have to get from a place of demanding and, and being a little child to a place where we can settle and enjoy God's presence even though we're not getting what it is we want. And that's the idea of being weaned. It's traumatic for a child, but it's one that's critical. And that's where David says, like a weaned child, I, I want to rest in the Lord. And uh, so... What I want to do here is I want to 
I, I want to point out that as, as the text itself says that we've calmed and quieted our soul like a weaned child with his mother. And then it goes on to say, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. I, I've used this illustration before. It's one of my favorite teachings, and it's one that is instilled in my mind by my youngest of my five children. And, and I, I'll never forget it. And, it, and it. and it just ministered to my heart because it was a season where, uh, again, I was troubled. I, I was going through doubts of the Lord and wondering where He was and why He wasn't operating the way I thought He's supposed to. God, I did this. You're supposed to do this. I did A. You're supposed to do B. And He didn't. And, and I'm left reeling and wondering. And, you know, there's just, it seems like a catastrophe and chaos. And I'm, I'm trying to understand the Lord. And, and I would get up in the morning, and I'd calm and quiet my soul, and I'd read. And I, and I would find those times of solace. Even when I didn't understand the Lord, I pressed in. And, and I remember my, my quiet times um, in those seasons. I would get up because we had young children, and the only time of the day that was mine was when I'd get up early. And some of the kids would get up really early, so I'd have to get up really, really early. And I'd get up, and I'd, I'd go in, I'd turn on the lamp, the light. I'd, I'd sit in a comfortable chair. I'd have my cup of coffee. I'd open up the Bible. I'd have my notepad next to me because my mind would be swirling with all the things I was concerned with. And as they would occupy my mind, I'd just write them on the yellow pad and put them aside for later so I could calm and quiet my soul. I just, I wanted to be with the Lord. I didn't want anything else, uh, you know, creeping into my time with Him. And I really had to just force myself to spend time in His presence so that nothing would cause me to deviate from just focusing on the comfort of His Word. And as I would be reading in the quietness of the morning and I'd, I'd be finding that, that comfort with Him, uh, my, my son Michael would get up real early. He was the earliest of the risers. And he'd see that light and it was just like a, an alarm clock for him. And I'd try, try to be as quiet as I could because I wanted to enjoy the time by myself. But he'd come in and he'd understand how important my time was with the Lord. And he still wanted to be with me. So he'd get up and he'd walk in and he'd tiptoe in so as not to uh, you know, bother me or frustrate me. He knew that this was time that I'd set aside. I'd get up early for this. And it was really sweet because there was a part of me like, oh, come on, I can't get up any earlier than you. I mean, at some point, I'm not even going to be going to bed because it's going to match the time I go to bed to the time I need to wake up. But this kid was like an alarm clock. And he'd come in, and he knew it was important to me. And oh, so gently as I'd be holding the, the Bible in my hand, reading, uh, and, and he would come in, and he would lift my arm so as not to disturb me, and he would just crawl under my arm weasel his way in there, rest his head right here, and just be as still and quiet as he could be. And he'd just sit there. And he'd put his head to my chest. He wouldn't say a word. And finally, I, I, I would just, I'd be as calmed and comforted as he was just to be in God's presence. And the Lord showed me this picture. He said, Rob, why are you irritated? He's, he's settled in your heart. He's, he's settled in your lap. He's happy to be with you. I've given you an illustration through your son of what I want from you. And, and those moments in that morning became very profound because I would reflect back. He was a precious, he still is a precious child, but he was precious as a young child because he was, he was joy boy. He was always filled with wonderment and excitement. He loved God's word. Um, he'd love to read. He knew he wouldn't interrupt me and say, Daddy, what are you reading? He wouldn't say anything. He was just so precious that way. And, and the Lord used him to minister to me. But 
Listen, the most profound part of it was when I would reflect back when he was a newborn. That kid was tough. Um, all my children were born over nine pounds, um, except for Michael. He was born over 10 pounds, and most of his weight was in his head. And, and this kid was ravenous when he was born. He, he couldn't get enough to eat. I mean, he just, he'd just go nuts in the evening when it was his feeding time because the last feeding, we'd tank him up, wrap him tight like a burrito, and put him in his crib. And we'd get a good five to six hours out of the kid where we'd be able to rest. But you'd have to wrap him tight. You just learn different things with different kids. But you had to hold him off for that last feeding. And he'd get irritated because you wanted to just, he, you wanted him to be so ravenous, you'd tank him up to where, I mean, he'd be as full as a tick. You couldn't get another gulp in. And, and we would tank him up. And then he'd just roll his eyes back and wrap him tight and put him in his crib. Boom, he'd be out like a light and we'd get rest. And, and this was a routine, but the worst part of the routine is Michelle would get him all ready for the night. So she'd have his clothes laid out, his change of diaper and all that stuff. She'd have to get the milk ready and have it, you know, everything had to be set. So she had preparation work to do and, and she couldn't be tending to Michael at that moment. And, and trust me, at that moment, he is livid. He's just angry. It's like, where's my food? He's, he's getting at a point where he's screaming. Uh, he's getting really agitated. I'd have been, I'd, I had been at work all day. Michelle had been with the kids all day. We were both tired. She's doing her job. She'd have those quiet moments with the kids. I didn't have any. I'd walk through the door. It's his feeding time. She'd hand me this agitated bundle of, you know, angst. It was Michael. And I'd hold him. And he, there was no way I could hold this kid that he was content. And, and if I brought him close at that age, you know, he'd, he'd be ready to eat. And I'm like, you know, hey, boy, I got nothing for you here. I'm dad. And, and he's just... He just fussing, and I'd hold him out like, "Come on, calm down." He screamed louder, and there was nothing I could do to console him. It, it was so frustrating, and and as, as a father, loving my son, there was nothing I could do to console him because he only wanted one thing, and and it wasn't anything I was prepared or capable of giving him, but he wanted that, and and there was nothing I could do as his father to bring him any comfort because he had one thing on his mind. He wanted that. He wanted nothing else. And then when you'd hook him up, that kid would just be in hog heaven. And, and he, you'd just fill him to the brim, wrap him tight, and put him to sleep. And, and that was my time with the boy in those early stages. It wasn't comforting. And then God reminded me of that when Michael crawled under my arm. He said, Rob, that's how it is with you. You, you're, you're, you wanted something. And you didn't get it. And you're whining and you're complaining and you're agitated and you're frustrated and you're lamenting. And, and I, I, I know the beginning from the end and all points in between. I know what I'm doing. I've been running this universe. I created this universe. I'm dealing with a world of sinful people. I'm operating with my bride, the church, which at, at this moment is needing a wake-up call. There's things that, that I have to do that are beyond your ability to comprehend. These are issues that are far too profound for your little brain, son. And what I need you to do is just calm down and sit in my lap and trust me. And I want you to just feed upon my word and, and, and not be overwhelmed by your agenda. Not be agitated where there's no way I can console you because... Everything you wanted, you didn't get. I'm your dad. I know what I'm supposed to do. You think I can't console you, but the Lord showed me, Rob, you were. You were, you were taking care of him so that the preparation could be made to give him what he truly needed. 
And, and he didn't understand that. But if you weren't holding him and consoling him and at least allowing Michelle to take care of the things she needed to do until what was to be provided would happen, this is how the Father is with us. We're just screaming at him. But the day's going to come for all of us, Lord willing, soon, like David in this psalm, that we would just calm down and realize whatever we're whining about, we have no idea. These are matters far too profound for us. And we just got to calm down, quiet our souls like a weaned child, and just sit in Dad's lap and hope in the Lord. And, and this, is, this is what develops faith. This is what develops depth of character of the Christian walk. I'm in the same boat you are. But, but this is where we got to be. we got to learn the cue from Michael as a, a suckling infant to Michael as a weaned child. One is agitated with the father and the other sits in the father's lap. He knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. And, and I'm saying that to you. The whole time I'm saying it, I'm, I'm hearing myself say it to me. He knows what he's doing. Calm down. Spend time with the Father. Turn it all off. Open His Word. Sit in His lap and feed upon the riches of His Word. It, move away from the milk and, and the agitation of, of your, your minuscule mindset and feed upon the meat of God's Word that will take you deep. That book of Job is a meaty book. But it's one for us to feed upon in these times of trial to realize God's in the business of making it work in a way far too profound for us to understand. Align yourself with Him and His ways. Calm down. Quit making it about you. It's about Him and it always has been. And you're upset that you didn't get what you wanted when you wanted it. Well, quit being a suckling child. It's time to be weaned and get into some, some meat and to sit in the Father's lap. And so... I pray that ministers to you. It did to me. And that's your midweek teaching. And that's a comfort from the Lord. And with that, I'm going to say the blessing, and then I'm going to pray for you. Out of number 6, verses 24 through 26, for all of you, as you're sitting in the Father's lap, as you spend time tomorrow in His Word, get up early. Make sure that it's all calm and quiet. Settle down. And just sit in His lap and read His Word. And with that, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you. And the Lord be gracious to you and lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Peace is being in the presence of the Lord. He's the Prince of Peace. Father, thank You for all who've tuned in and those who will hear this later. I just pray Your comfort upon them. That, Lord, folks would be drawn to this in this season of confusion. That their desires have not been fulfilled and they're, they're suckling infants that are upset. But it's time that they wean themselves from their agenda and instead of being agitated with the Father who is holding him in this time of screaming and being upset because things didn't go the way they wanted or they're not getting what they want while uh, the bride <laughs> is preparing for them something far greater, a feeding that will cause them to rest. Lord, when we learn that lesson, may we find ourselves now weaned and, and content, trusting you, sitting in your lap, feeding upon the meat and the riches of your word in these seasons where you're taking us deeper. So God, thank you. Comfort us, Lord. We're not going to concern ourselves with matters too profound. We know you're at work. And our desire now is to be aligned with your will. You're our Father. We want to do your bidding. We want to be content with what you decide. 
And so, Lord, as we spend time with you, would you speak to us and direct us as you did Job and others who have been in these same circumstances? And, Lord, we're so grateful. Your word is true. We have that to rest in. Bless you, Lord, and thank you for all who've tuned in. Comfort them now, Lord. We pray and we pray blessing upon Calvary Chapel San Jose and for Mike and Carson and all the folks involved, especially for their wives that today they were worried their husbands would be in prison. We thank you that you've given them respite and relief from that. But, Lord, even as they're facing these insurmountable odds, you're a mighty God. And so, Lord, please let them rest in you, knowing that you're working a greater purpose, maybe even to awaken the church. Lord, I can only assume and guess, but, Lord, you already know. And so our job is to trust you through that and to align ourselves with you. So thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, folks, thanks for joining us tonight. That was your midweek teaching. You probably wanted something else, but that's what you get. And interestingly enough, these aren't the most watched of them all, but I tell you what, they're the ones that you really should tune into and uh, feed upon because they're the ones that are going to bring you the greatest comfort. We'll have guests, but the guest tonight was God and His Word. That's a good one. That's the best one. All right, we'll see you tomorrow night. Good night, everybody.